So today I'm talking about the probability and severity of a nuclear war between the U.S. and Russia. A um, few more concrete details about what I'll say. Um, first, I'll just explain uh, the case for working on reducing the risk of nuclear war from, a, uh, from an effective altruism perspective. Um, then I'll talk about changes in uh, nuclear weapons policy uh, that the U.S. and Russia have uh, that basically have shifted my views on how worried we should be about uh, nuclear risks. So specifically, I'll talk about the number of nuclear weapons that the U.S. and Russia have in their arsenals. I'll talk about the size of the nuclear weapons um, each has in their arsenal. And then I'll talk about the targeting strategy that each would use during a nuclear exchange. Um, I'll talk a little bit about some modeling I've done to estimate how bad uh, the nuclear war would be. And then, uh, again, I'll like summarize why I think uh, nuclear risks are like slightly less terrifying than maybe like most effective altruists think. So first, um, just like briefly, I'll talk about the probability of a nuclear war. We don't know very much about uh, the likelihood that the U.S. and Russia would have a nuclear exchange. Um, what we do know comes from international relations experts um, who put the probability of nuclear war between the U.S. and Russia at between or at around 0.24 percent per year. Um, we also have data from the Good Judgment Project super forecasters, um, which many of you are probably familiar with. These are uh, kind of regular people who are like really good at uh, predicting geopolitical events. Um, so super forecasters put the probability of a U.S.-Russia nuclear war a bit lower at 0.004 percent uh, by 2021. Um, so the takeaway here is like we don't know much. Uh, the probability seems like uncertain but pretty low. And, uh, like, this is just an unprecedented event. We shouldn't take these numbers super literally. Um, but, of course, if the impacts are really bad, um, then we should worry about this. Um, so the case that the impacts um, could be really bad is mostly um, based on this idea that a nuclear war between the U.S. and Russia could cause a nuclear winter. So a nuclear winter, um, just briefly, uh, is... Basically, the idea that uh, if a bunch of nuclear weapons were detonated um, on cities, um, those weapons, those detonations would cause uh, massive fires, and those fires would cause smoke to be like lofted into the atmosphere um, by winds that the detonations themselves create. Um, that smoke would be so high in the atmosphere that it wouldn't be affected by the climate. Um, so basically, it wouldn't be like rained out. Um, and so it could remain in the atmosphere for between five and 10 years. Um, the smoke would basically spread out over the, over the world um, and like block thermal radiation from the sun. Um, and this would cause like temperatures and precipitation changes that would make agriculture um, nearly impossible. Um, this would lead to global famines potentially. Um, and those famines could kill theoretically like most people on earth. Um, so this is like, uh, yeah, the worst that nuclear winter could be. Um, the research done on nuclear winter was done during the Cold War. Um, researchers found this like extreme result, basically, that says between 50 and 300 teragrams of smoke. Um, teragram is a million tons. It's just like the metric uh, that we talk about smoke in. Um, that's the amount of smoke that would lead to a nuclear winter so severe that it could like uh, plausibly pose an extinction risk. Um, but a couple of things have changed since that research was done. 
Um, so that'll be like, yeah, that's the main thing I want to share today. One important thing that's changed is just the number of nuclear weapons that the U.S. and Russia have in their arsenals. Um, so you can see there have been a series of bilateral arms control treaties since the Cold War um, ended that basically reduced the number of nuclear weapons in U.S. and Russian arsenals from tens, tens of thousands to um, under 10,000. Um, also, the like size of the nuclear weapons in the U.S. and Russian arsenals has changed quite a bit. Um, so you can see that the bombs dropped on Japan um, were 20 kilotons. A kiloton is just a measure of explosive yield. Um, that size bomb uh, was like, yeah, by the Cold War, it had gotten like much, much, much bigger, 9,000 kilotons. Um, but like actually since uh, the nuclear winter research was done, um, it's like gotten a bit smaller again. So it's not as small as it was um, when bombs were dropped um, during World War II, but it's like much smaller than, yeah, when this research was done. Um, most importantly, um, a thing that has changed since uh, the Cold War is the type of targeting strategy um, that I think the U.S. and Russia are likely to use during a nuclear exchange. Um, so there are two main types of targeting strategies. Um, there's counter-value targeting and there's counter-force targeting. So counter-value targeting is when you target what uh, a country values. So it's people or it's cities, um, it's industry. Uh, counter-force targeting is when you target a country's nuclear forces. Um, mostly this is like missile silos, but it would also be some like uh, military uh, yeah, military sites, um, maybe submarines if we could find them. Um, and like the type of targeting strategy that the U.S. and Russia would use is just really important to how bad um, we think a nuclear winter might be. Um, so the big reason for this is uh, the like targets uh, associated with each targeting strategy um, have a really different amount uh, of smoke that like could result from uh, from the fires that would be caused by detonations in each type of target. Um, so remember, like smoke is the key ingredient um, for nuclear winter, and that smoke is caused by massive fires. You just have like way less flammable material in um, like in and around missile silos, which are primarily surrounded by wildlands like shrublands and croplands. Um, and you compare this to cities where there's just like orders of magnitude more material to burn. And it turns out that the amount of smoke is just like much, much smaller. Um, so you get actually one to two percent of the smoke released into the atmosphere um, if you detonated bombs on, uh, yeah, on wildlands relative to detonating bombs in cities. Um, so this is one reason I think nuclear winter is like less likely to be super severe um, in the event of a U.S.-Russia exchange. Um, relatedly, uh, the type of smoke that you would get um, based on the targeting strategy is pretty different. So um, like organic material, which is the material that would mostly surround counter-force targets, um, burns like cleaner, which just means it's uh, more opaque. The sun would permeate it more easily. Um, and that means that the like temperature effects um, would just be smaller um, if, if counter-force target targeting were used. Um, by contrast, like 
detonating bombs in cities, causes fires um, to burn inorganic materials. That inorganic material is super um, impermeable. Uh, and so like you get uh, exacerbated effects from, uh, yeah, from the smoke being in the atmosphere. Um, so the reason I think this question like matters now more than it would have when this original research was being done is that counterforce targeting has just gotten um, much more feasible, more strategically um, like useful. Um, the like type of technology that you need to implement counterforce targeting is like is much more expensive uh, to produce and much more like technologically complicated. Um, so to detonate a bomb on a missile silo, you have to like targets like a very small target um, at like a precise and you have to detonate a bomb in a very precise moment um, and that's like hard you just have to be very accurate very precise and it's like technologically during the cold war um, we weren't very good at that um, to illustrate uh, a bomb detonated on a missile silo um, during the cold war would have had a nine percent chance of uh, destroying the missile silo now it would have a 90 percent chance um, this just like means that counterforce targeting is a much more promising strategy um, for either the U.S. or Russia to use. Um, counter value targeting is was probably, or at least one reason it was a dominant strategy, um, is because it's like it's just like much easier. Um, all you have to do is detonate a bomb uh, on a city. Um, it's like, yeah, it's just not uh, as technologically complicated. Um, so that. I think is like a main reason that it was so um, central to nuclear doctrine uh, during the Cold War. Um, and I think because of this, there's some evidence that U.S. nuclear doctrine in particular has shifted away from counter-value targeting. Um, so uh, one, one piece of evidence is just like uh, in the 2010 nuclear posture review, the U.S. explicitly for the first time said that it will never target um, civilians or civilian objects. Um, that doesn't mean like the U.S. certainly wouldn't. Um, I think there's like reason to find this like, yeah, not um, totally reassuring. Um, but I think it's like some evidence that uh, the U.S. has like probably changed its default plans away from, uh, yeah, away from counter value targeting. Um, Russia hasn't explicitly said this, um, but their nuclear forces look like the kind of nuclear forces that you would use to do counter force targeting. Um, so again, as I mentioned, uh, nuclear, or, yeah, nuclear targeting of uh, missile silos, for example, is really difficult and expensive. Um, so you have to have like a very large arsenal and, a, and an arsenal that has like super accurate missiles um, in order to do this well. Um, Russia has a very large and accurate arsenal, um, which makes me, yeah, which makes me suspect that like counterforce targeting is like an important part of their targeting strategy. Um, you can compare this to China, who has an explicit countervalue targeting strategy. Um, basically, China says, if anyone detonates a bomb on us, we are going to, or a nuclear bomb on us, we're going to retaliate by targeting cities. Um, and because of that, they, um, they have a very small and crude nuclear arsenal. Um, it's like much, much cheaper. Um, so it like, given that this is like their, their strategy, um, like why invest in a more, um, sophisticated and expensive arsenal? Um, so again, I take this as like some evidence that Russia thinks of counterforce targeting as like important to their targeting strategy. They're also just like, 
good reasons uh, that the U.S. and Russia would prefer counterforce targeting over countervalue targeting. So a big reason is just uh, the fact that targeting your adversaries' cities would all but guarantee that they would target yours. So you are risking the destruction of your society, um, millions and millions of lives, all when there's like a very reasonable um, alternative targeting strategy. Um, this just seems bad. Uh, it's also the case that targeting cities is like explicitly against humanitarian law, so it's illegal. Um, it also would um, like make the U.S. and Russia look bad. I think like a lot of people have the intuition that the U.S. and Russia don't care much about what other countries think of them. Um, but in particular in arms control, there are like lots of cases where the U.S. and Russia seem to care a lot about um, like shame and stigma around using weapons that are like considered inhumane. Um, also, if you're like not convinced that Russia is like maybe moving toward counterforce targeting based on what their arsenal looks like and based on these reasons, um, it's also just the case that it would be strategically worse for them uh, to have a countervalue targeting war. Um, experts that I've talked to have told me that uh, the U.S. would have like a large advantage um, if countervalue targeting were used, um, and so it really doesn't seem like Russia would want to start a countervalue war. That just seems like it wouldn't, that's like, it wouldn't help them. They wouldn't be more likely to win. Um, so I, tr I like try to express these views quantitatively. Um, so you know exactly how likely I think it is that these targeting strategies are used. Um, basically, I put about a 25% chance, one in four chance, on the U.S. Uh, initiating countervalue targeting on Russia, and about a 40% chance on Russia initiating countervalue targeting on the U.S. Um, you can see from my confidence intervals at the end there, I'm like extremely uncertain. So I think there's like some evidence that uh, both countries would prefer counterforce targeting, but I'm like, I really don't know uh, for sure. And I think, um, yeah, I like want to be clear about that uh, uncertainty. Um, so I took this view and a bunch of other uh, like, I guess, subjective views, but also um, science around climate, uh, yeah, the climate science around nuclear winter, uh, the number of nuclear weapons I think would be used in exchange, um, a bunch of other parameters that I haven't gone into, um, but that I can talk about more in the questions. Um, and I tried to model how much smoke um, would be released into the atmosphere, um, which then allows me to model how likely a nuclear winter that would pose an extinction risk to um, humanity is. Um, yeah, here are some of the parameters I haven't talked about. Um, I think mostly these parameters are either like more rooted in like science and facts, less subjective, less like, yeah, less, it's less the case that reasonable people disagree. Um, and I also just wanted to highlight, um, changes in policies I think are like, uh, most change this model from like the Cold War era, um, when the, when the research was done. So here are my basic results. Um, Remember that it takes between 50 and 150, maybe as much as 300 teragrams of smoke to get the kind of nuclear winter that could pose an X risk. Um, I find that in expectation, you'd actually get about 25 teragrams of smoke. Um, I still find some probability on getting 50 teragrams, which is this lower bound for severe nuclear winter. Um, I think it's around, or like my model suggests that there's like 
just under a 10% chance that a U.S.-Russia nuclear war um, would cause, yeah, an extinction um, threat-level nuclear winter. Um, but uh, I think this is, like, a lot lower than effective altruists tend to implicitly assume when they talk about nuclear risks. Uh, I think generally, like, the narrative has been, like, U.S.-Russia nuclear war would cause nuclear winter, um, and, and like, yeah, I think this should make us more, um, more optimistic that, uh, even if the U.S. and Russia did have a nuclear war, nuclear winter is like not a guarantee. Um, that said, uh, this like, this parameter that I've talked about, counter value targeting, um, as a primary strategy, and also a bunch of other parameters in my model are like subject to debate. Um, so I just want to give one example of how much my results, um, would vary if you like held very different views from me on this. Um, so if you thought that it was like very, very likely, um, that both the U.S. and Russia would engage in countervalue targeting against each other in a U.S.-Russia nuclear war, um, then the expected amount of smoke is 66 teragrams. Um, that, uh, yeah, that's enough for nuclear winter, at least like the lower threshold according to the climate science, um, that exists. And so then we'd like, we'd have like reasonable disagreements about how much you should worry about nuclear winter, um, in this case, like, there's still some probability that you wouldn't have a severe nuclear winter, but it's more probable and not, than not, according to my model, um, that, uh, that you wouldn't get the, like, extinction risk level effects. Um, I think this is, like, yeah, you shouldn't take my numbers, like, completely literally, but I do think it points to, uh, parameter, or, like, considerations, um, in, like, the nuclear risk space, um, that one, like, might point to reasons why, uh, effective altruists seem to have, like, kind of different views on how troubling nuclear war is. Um, I also think it, like, points to, um, like, areas where we might want to recommend policies, um, that, like, yeah, that target specific things that, like, have a large bearing on how, how likely a nuclear war is. So, for example, I'd be more excited about policies, um, that talked about targeting strategy, um, than something like disarmament, um, because countervalue targeting has this, like, outsized impact on how bad, uh, nuclear winter would be. Um, so I think, like, yeah, I think these values, or these models are valuable, um, for things beyond the literal numbers, uh, or beyond the numbers, which again, I wouldn't take literally. Um, yeah, to conclude, um, there are a bunch of other factors that I think, again, reasonable people would disagree on. Um, my guesstimate model is public and you can like go in, fiddle with the probabilities, um, change things and see how that affects like your, in your intuitions about how nuclear, how bad nuclear war would be. Um, I'm also happy to like, yeah, talk about some of those parameters in the questions. Um, but yeah, would encourage you all to, um, to like input your own things and see, and see what you think. Um, yeah, so now happy to take questions. Let's see where to start. Um, just to kind of ground this, uh, a little bit. That how do you, how do you translate like the number of cities that get destroyed into these units of smoke? Like mm -hmm. how many cities gets us to that fifty threshold? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there's research uh, that's been done mostly based on like nuclear weapons testing uh, that was done in the fifties, but also based on the uh, bombs dropped in Japan um, that uh, like kind of 
predicts based on the size of a city and based on, um, yeah, again, based on like what we learned from those nuclear weapons tests, um, how much smoke is produced uh, and like how high that goes in the atmosphere. Um, a lot of the, yeah, a lot of the numbers that I get are reliant on like extrapolating from, um, yeah, from research that was done that's like not perfectly, um, yeah, so the fact that uh, some of the some of the research comes from these Japan bombs um, means that we're extrapolating from like a certain type of city size and also um, from like certain bomb sizes, uh, which means that like research is really the research on this is really like uh, really really fishy. But basically, what's been done is like given how much smoke we saw there. Uh, how much might we see from a city like New York? Um, the factors that go into that are like population size, population density, how big the bomb is relative to the Japan bombs, things like that. that so, I, yeah. So, but I'm kind of trying to pick, you know, imagine mm. this, like if you were to tell me that 200 cities, you know, mm. the top 200 American cities get destroyed mm-hmm. and that's what it takes to get to a nuclear winter. I almost don't yeah. care at that point, right? Like the whole world yeah. is kind of uh, destroyed. Mm-hmm. If you told me it was three, yeah. Then it's like, wow, geez, that could really, that's like the predominant worry. So I'm wondering, you know, how deep down the list of city targets I you see. have to go before you hit that level. Yeah. Okay. So, um, one thing that's like hard about that question is that it like really depends on, um, the size of the nuclear bomb that you drop. But if you assume that you use, uh, like the median bomb in the median size bomb in the U.S. and Russian arsenal, uh, you would get nuclear winter, uh, this is like, this is like holding a bunch of other things constant or something, but you would get nuclear winter at like, uh, under a hundred cities bombed, um, probably between like 50 and a hundred. Um, so, and I should also say like, that's like nuclear detonations, not necessarily like that many cities, but if there were 50 to a hundred bombs ish, dropped on cities it could be like 20 in new york for example um that's like the level we're talking about uh leading to severe nuclear winter okay um why does the u.s win in the counter value exchange scenario yeah this is like uh, a question i don't fully know the answer to and i've kind of deferred to the judgment of experts um so like uh like this is like experts at like the nuclear threat initiative um just to give context um but like uh the gist is like uh the u.s is slightly better at um at like conventional war relative to russia and counter value targeting has like more in common with conventional war than counter force targeting um they're like yeah i don't know i could say a couple more things about that but uh it like comes down to the U.S. seems like better at war, and counter value targeting okay. is like more like war. Interesting. Um, so you mentioned the the Obama era mm-hmm. kind of change in policy, or at least like clarification maybe of policy. So recently, a uh, another uh, you know as- aspiring uh, candidate, Elizabeth Warren, has come out and said she would put in place a no first use policy. I think maybe a couple others have have followed on with that as well. What do you think of that as a strategy does that help the overall picture yeah um yeah i definitely uh would prefer a world with no first use policies than not um i think i kind of alluded to this at the end like uh if i were to like change 
Yeah, if I were to change policies, I would change other policies first. Um, but no first use seems like clearly good to me. Um, I would be excited about Elizabeth Warren doing that. So, tell, I mean, policies that have recently changed, I'd be interested to hear what policies you, you think should be uh, changed first in a little more detail. But treaties have recently been changed. We've abandoned some. How big of a deal is that? Yeah. Um, so we left the INF treaty. Um, we like there's another treaty. It's actually the last bilateral arms control treaty between the U.S. and Russia called the New Start Treaty that's about to expire um, in 2021. So that would actually leave us with no controls on like the size, types, and number of nuclear weapons that the U.S. and Russia have, um, and that would that like that would worry me. That makes me very nervous um, because. Yeah, not having, um, in particular caps on like the size of nuclear weapons, uh, I think, I think increases the risk of getting enough smoke in the atmosphere to have the like really scary nuclear winter effects. Um, yeah, other changes in treaty. Uh, I guess I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm like worried about this in particular because, um, I guess I'm, there are like other policies again that like I think matter a bit more, but like, uh, size matters a lot, uh, to like smoke and fires. So like that, uh, that troubles me. And kind of implicit in that model, and this is kind of staggering, but potentially true, is that the treaties are what's limiting these countries from going out and building even bigger nuclear bombs. Yeah. Bigger, more, um, like, Yes. Uh, wants to, it seems almost like we, I mean, I feel like we could have said this on 10 issues throughout this weekend, but it seems like we sort of should have learned our lesson a little bit about mm. this already. Like, are there really people at the top, you think of these governments that are saying, well, when that thing expires, this is our chance to build the biggest, baddest bombs we've ever built? Um, yeah, I'm not sure it would happen like that quickly or immediately. I'm not sure that's the goal of letting the treaty expire. Um, my like understanding is that, uh, the reason the Trump administration would consider letting, uh, the New START treaty ex expire in particular is because it like wants China to be involved in new nuclear weapons treaties. Um, so it's not, I'm not necessarily, um, worried that like, uh, they want the treaties to expire to immediately build more and nuclear, more and bigger nuclear bombs. Um, I just think it like takes away the constraints in a way that is like, uh, scary given that arms race dynamics, um, like exist. And this is like a nice clear cap on, cap on those. Yeah. So you mentioned China. A question that came in from the app was, can your model be used to analyze other States, or, you know, is it is it just the U.S. and Russia that kind of fit into it, or could you kind of plug China into that as well? Yeah, so um, like there are a couple of things that have to change when you think about China, um, and I'm I'm actually like most of the way done with a China model. Um, some things that change are China's cities are like much much bigger than American and Russian cities. Um, you would basically from the same size bomb dropped on a U.S. city uh, get twice as much smoke. Uh, if the same bomb were dropped on a Chinese city. Um, so you have to change some uh, of the like, yeah, some of the like inputs to the model a bit. Um, you couldn't go in right now and like estimate smoke produced by a China war. Um, but it's like the like structure is pretty much the same. A few uh, inputs are like, I've like calculated them and I'll be like publishing a model soon that can be used to estimate smoke from a China war. Awesome. Well, this has been uh, a remarkably 
rigorous, if uh, even, you know, of course, still somewhat uh, speculative talk. So I really appreciate that. And uh, it's made me feel, I guess, ever so slightly uh, better about this issue. So I appreciate that as well. Uh, we are unfortunately out of time, a lot more questions, and, and hopefully you can meet up uh, with Luisa to ask them in person. But for now, how about a round of applause for Luisa Rodriguez? Thank you very much. Outstanding job.